You'll be saying that again in about three minutes when we get into the episode. Oh, I know we will. <laughs> I know we will. Sean's going to be like, I really, really dislike that, blah, 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 and that's going to be the whole pod. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he plans to just derail you. You think, you think I'm going to be that nice about it? <laughs> why, why Sean wouldn't buy this for any amount of money and why he's, in fact, probably throwing away 100 copies of this record. He won't life. even sell it. <laughs> I guarantee yeah. he's thrown this record away at least a dozen times. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm just happy to be here talking about some beautiful noise with these beautiful boys. Ooh. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm reallocating my joke title time to tell everyone that I've been obsessed with the roaches since we've done that episode. And if you didn't listen to that episode, I'm not going to say you screwed up. I'm going to say you have time to make it right. (laughs) Well, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that you're really into a record that we featured that you weren't familiar with, Jeremy. I know. Typically, I don't like music, so this is a nice change. (laughs) It's a big step for you. Well, I am co-host... Peter Cook, and I am the author of a new book entitled So Good, So Good, So Fucking Good, A Musical History of Bar and Bro Culture. <laughs> My name is Jacob Selner. I'm the guest host on this Whoa. album. What? Hi there, guest host. Hi. You snuck up on me. Are you supposed to introduce me? I wanted to introduce myself. Introduce yourself. Cool. I, I am actually a professional shill for large music-making conglomerates. You can read about my exploits in that capacity in my blog, Shillin' Like a Villain, or tune into my podcast, Shillin' in the Name of, which is available anywhere podcasts are sold. Sold. Emphasis is on sold. Wow, Shillin' in the Name of. That's great. <laughs> yeah, well, Jeremy, what was your uh, Rage Against the Machine related title? Oh, I don't remember. It was no. Daft Punk related. It was uh, yeah. It somehow tied in like three or four different things. It took like a week of solid random access tap dance memories. There it is. Oh, there it is. <laughs> we did it. We figured it out. That's what it was. <laughs> We've got our Encyclopedia Britannica over here. <laughs> oh, it's good to have you back, Jacob. You want to remind the people who you are? Tell them about you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, is... maybe even tell them what episode you previously guested on on this show. Yeah, sure. About a year ago, I showed up on this podcast to present a little war record called Deliver the Word. and uh, You did deliver the word. I did. I brought it. I'm a friend of all these guys that do this podcast. I've done various musical projects with some of them over the years. And uh, I'm Jeremy's roommate. Yeah. Uh, pardon me, roommate as well. So. I'm I'm around often when the pod is being recorded, usually responsible for background noises that Jeremy has to edit out. And some of them get through, I think, sometimes, which is pretty rad. 
Yeah, I think a few of your little happenings have gotten through. <laughs> I'll be like cooking dinner or coming out of the shower yeah. or something. And... Yeah. You uh, you build yourself as Jeremy's private chef the last time you were on. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> it's still true, I think. Yeah, you've probably ghost-guested on at least like 10 episodes at this point. <laughs> I have occasionally, too, looked up funny things on the couch while they were talking about it. I'm like, I'm curious about that, and then showed the computer screen to Jeremy. Like, check this out, man. <laughs> Fact checker. <laughs> true. I seem 10% smarter than i am thanks to jacob that's what i do that's what a good shill does he's the real man behind the man over here and i'd buy that for a dollar that's right man behind the legend even (laughs) well jacob what did you bring us to discuss this week on i'd buy that for a dollar so probably to sean's chagrin I brought a Neil Diamond album. Just calling me out that early. I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna let I'm setting the listeners up. I'm (laughs) setting them up for you to knock them down. I'm bringing a Neil Diamond album, and I'm gonna say largely because uh, my mother's a huge Neil Diamond fan, as you know most mothers of people my age are. And we used to cruise around a lot in the car, listening to Neil Diamond on summer days with the windows down. And uh, I've definitely belted "I Am." I said at the top of my lungs. Well drinking a soda after grocery shopping more times than I can count. So, And also, this dude is available at like every Goodwill, Salvation Army. Um, like personally? He's there? He's there. He's there <laughs> handing out free records, actually. That's that's how you get a Neil Diamond record. Still, Go to a thrift store, and he's there. He's still going grassroots on it. <laughs> still going grassroots, man, from day one. No, but, but these records are ubiquitous. They're inexpensive. And you can usually find a, a good copy of a Neil Diamond album for cheap. So I brought one that I thought had a pretty interesting story because I said to Jeremy, hey, man, you guys ought to do a Neil Diamond record. And he said, well, find one that has a good story. So this one kind of ties into a movement in rock and roll uh, that was going on in the mid, I'd say mid to late 60s through the mid 70s. And that was uh, Bob Dylan's stated mission to kill Tin Pan Alley. This particular album is kind of Neil Diamond's ode to his experiences trying to make it as a Tin Pan Alley songwriter in his youth. So the album is Beautiful Noise, and the first track on the album uh, shares the same name, I believe. Our DJ over here is going to spin that one now for you all to listen to. Side A, track one, Beautiful Noise. 1976 on Columbia. Yeah, Columbia's uni subsidiary. Ah. Song of the kids, and it 
dark It's the song of a cause On their furious flights But there's even romance In the way that they dance To the beat of the lights It's a beautiful noise And it's a sound that I love And it makes me feel good Like a hand in a glove Since I was already called out as being the guy that was most likely to hate on this record, I just want to say a few things real quick. Jacob, you know I love you, right? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I tried so hard with this record, Jacob. And by tried so hard, I mean I listened to every single second of this album which was kind of a feat because I was just constantly suppressing the urge to turn it off and never listen to it again. <laughs> I I think I kind of liked the song Jungle Time, but by that point, it kind of was starting to feel like Stockholm Syndrome. And <laughs> Can we just I have mean, you free even... associate while that one plays? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I'm just, I'm not a Neil Diamond guy, and I wanted to be, you know, you called me the other day and... Gave me all the reasons why you were excited about this, and it made me excited about it. And I was like, you know, I hate every Neil Diamond hit I've heard, but maybe the deep cuts are good. It still just wasn't for me. I'm sorry. But I'm excited to hear why you love it and the reasons why you pick this record in particular. So I'm going to be nice, but this is this is officially my least favorite record we've ever done on the podcast. And it you know, takes Sean, that Kinks record off the number one spot for me. <laughs> I actually have that Kinks record in my collection, too. I, I wanted to wanted to point out that probably a lot of your listenership are people that have the same feelings about Neil Diamond because many people think uh, his stuff is cheesy, unmusical, overly corporate, overly produced, and that there's not a lot of sincerity to the music, and, and maybe that holds up for some of the tunes. But I think this, this particular album has some redeeming qualities. Uh, I personally love the music, even on that first one, you know, it— it kind of almost starts out with this John Cage thing, the city noise that's that's working its way into the recording. And, you know, the, the song, he's describing how he wants to turn all the city noise and bottle it up and capture it into music. And he's doing so with the optimism of a young person who's on his way to the place that's been the seat of recorded music and written music in America for almost 100 years to try to take his crack at, at making it. I also really dig that there's kind of a polka feel to the rhythm section on that album on top of all this huge orchestration with strange synthesizers and brass. Because Neil Diamond is the son of Polish Jewish immigrants and you kind of hear some Eastern European influence working its way into an album that's also got a lot of modern rock and roll and contemporary sounds uh, for 1976. So, Yeah, I was surprised. As someone who only knows a handful of Neil Diamond songs, I still have a pretty good idea of what I expect him to sound like and instrumentally this one really surprised me this album there's a there's an interesting reason for that so when neil diamond signed to uni records he was kind of on a rocket ship to the moon in terms of his record sales playing tons of sold out shows across the country and he was starting to get burned out 
and he had children at home that he wanted to be a father to. So he actually announced in, I think, 1972 that he was taking a brief hiatus from touring. This was in his in his early 30s when his potential to sell records was massive. And he wound up taking a 40-month hiatus during which he read over 200 books and taught himself music theory so he could write orchestration for his albums. Yeah, I saw that he wrote every single song on this album, too. And he did much of the orchestration. There's uh, hired arrangers for every track. Mm -hmm. But he was deeply involved in the writing process more so than his previous albums because he'd taken the time to uh, kind of steep himself in music writing and music production during the time of his last album and this one. Well, that's definitely admirable. Yeah, definitely admirable. He he actually said in one interview that he envisioned himself as a synthesis between uh, George Gershwin and Robert Frost. At least that's what he aspired to be. So really trying to capture the essence of American music and in many ways to the the essence of the American immigrant story, which is why there's so much hope in in this very first track on this album. And some of the tunes, Jungle Time, for instance, there's there's this disenfranchisement and connection as well. And you kind of hear the highs and the lows and his experience trying to make it in Tin Pan Alley. And there's actually a, a bit written on the back of, of my copy on the record that says, Tin Pan Alley died hard, but there was always the music to keep you going. Uh, and it's signed N.D. Yeah, I read that this was intended loosely as a concept album. Yeah, pretty loosely. He's not very explicit about much of the stuff, but a little bit of his background, I guess. He, he was born in 1941, I believe, which was the same year as Bob Dylan. And that, that becomes pertinent a little bit later in, in kind of the thread I want to take with this. Uh, to Jewish immigrant parents, they came from Poland. Uh, they moved around the country because his father was in the United States Army. So he never really had roots, but he, I think, identified himself pretty strongly as a New Yorker. When he was a teenager, he received a fencing scholarship to attend New York University, was the ninth man on their nine-man fencing team, and said he was very proud to be that because he thought they had a great team, and I think he was just kind of happy to hold on. And he dropped out of college 10 credits shy of graduating with a degree in pre-med so that he could go to the only place where he knew people went to make it as songwriters to write songs. And the impetus for that was he had an experience at a summer camp where Pete Seeger was playing songs and singing for all these kids. And he was taken with Pete Seeger's command of the audience and the message of his music and also with his patience as a person. Pete Seeger apparently spent many hours after his performance sitting around in a circle with kids from the camp and listening to songs they had written. In a later interview, a record company executive said that Neil Diamond's a real mensch. He'll invite your mom backstage after the concert and give her flowers. And so I think that that message from Pete Seeger really carried over into his professional life. And his real name is Neil Diamond. Not a stage name. Yeah, I, I always thought that he probably had some long and difficult to pronounce Jewish name or yeah. maybe a name that didn't look sexy on a record, uh, record sleeve. But no, he's actually Neil Diamond. Yeah, that's wild. I was expecting to hear otherwise and then just looked it up out of curiosity. And there it was, Neil Diamond. Yeah, so he spent a few years struggling to sell songs. He would do like about one a week. And I think he says at one point in an interview that he was living off of about 35 cents per day and he would have enough money for a sandwich, a Coke, and a piece of candy. And this was around a time when, when he was really struggling to find his voice. He did some performances too, apparently his first show ever was at a fair in Philadelphia, and he tripped over a cable and fell onto his face, embarrassing himself immediately before performing. So kind of got off to an inauspicious start. 
after a while of trying to make it in these these tin pan alley song mills and really what they would do in these large buildings there were two of account 1650 broadway and the brill building were these massive business buildings on broadway street in new york city that had these tiny cubbies cubbies carol king described them as being little cells that had barely enough room for a piano and a songwriter if the songwriter was lucky <laughs> a ton of hit music was written in these places, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some some prolific names in American music that worked in these places. And generally, in these buildings, you could have a song written, recorded, produced, have all of the ad markup made, and have all of the record sleeve designs done in one place. So they were really convenient shops. And this carries over from the earlier Tin Pan Alley tradition where all these music sellers essentially had shops set up uh, along one street, and they would clang out these tunes that were meant to be you know, sung, they were selling sheet music and, and Sean pointed out too when we talked earlier that maybe even roles for automatic player pianos, I'm not certain. And a really common tactic for the Tin Pan Alley songwriters before stereos were broadly available is they would actually send song pluggers. So someone would write a song that they wanted to make a hit and they would send people into crowded spaces to sing the songs over and over again until people got it stuck in their heads and they would be able to sell copies of the sheet music. So this area of New York and this tradition of songwriting was very much about marketability of music. It was also, however, a place where many Jewish musicians found a home and found viable and successful careers in music, which is, I think, part of the reason why Neil Diamond chose Tin Pan Alley to get his start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. That's really interesting, too, that the kind of that vertical integration that you were talking about of, you know, every aspect of the song writing and production all just in one place. Mm-hmm overseeing every aspect of it uh, just to think i can't imagine that environment uh, of people all just be having to be creative like all day long (laughs) and then if you're not creative enough you're not selling they they kick you out right i mean his first writing assignment neil diamond's first writing assignment was i think 16 weeks long and he didn't have his contract re-upped so he was just kind of bumping around from office to office in new york trying to find a jump and eventually he gave up on the tin pan alley thing and started working in a the annex above a nightclub they had an upright piano a place called the birdland club and he would go up there and it was then when he disconnected from trying to write hit songs and writing more deeply personal music that he started to find some success and then he was signed to the label bang records which was run by one burt burns and Burt Burns was responsible for many hit R&B songs, and he had offices in the 1950, or sorry, 1650 Broadway building that I mentioned a little bit earlier. And Burns apparently had a little bit of a temper, and he wanted the artists on his label, who included Van Morrison, to be people that cranked out hits that had radio appeal. And Neil Diamond did this for a little while, but after about two years of working with this label, he got tired of it. He wanted to write songs that he felt had more substance, and he had a pretty volatile relationship with Burns. There was apparently a scene in Neil Diamond's life where he was scheduled to play a concert at this place called The Bitter End, which I believe was in Los Angeles. And someone threw a smoke bomb into the venue during the performance because Diamond was recording a live album, and he attributes the smoke bombing of The Bitter End to Burt Burns because this happened immediately after Diamond announced that he was leaving Bang Records. And he was in litigation with that label for almost 10 years. Fortunately, he was able to continue writing and producing songs. The label filed for an injunction to prevent him from working. That was denied, but for about 10 years, he was not able to record any of the material that he'd written or worked on well at Bang Records. And as an aside, Van Morrison insists that he's never received a penny from Bang for Brown Eyed Girl. 
Van Morrison was also in a long legal battle with with Brown or with Bang Records, uh, and he ended up having to give them three songs a month for a year in order to get out of his contract. I, I was wondering, there's that Van Morrison album of like made up songs that he kind of just did on the spot. They're all real jokey and silly. I was wondering if that was related to that contract. I would say more than likely. I've heard some more things about Neil Young's trance album, but who knows? <laughs> so this album is kind of autobiographical then. When you first said like it's about going to Tin Pan Alley, for some reason when I hear Tin Pan Alley, my brain goes to like depression era. <laughs> And like dudes walking around without shoes on and like Well like holding out a tin pan to get some money. Yeah. That's I think... like what I imagine. So uh I didn't realize that Neil Diamond himself participated in it and that it was persisted into the sixties. Yeah, the appellation actually comes from it's been attributed to two different sources. One being uh the slang word, I think around the nineteen twenties for an out of tune piano being a tin pan. And the other one, uh, a journalist purportedly said that walking down the street of, of this alleyway in New York sounded like a bunch of tin pans being banged on with spoons because there were so many people working at pianos to try to write songs. And uh, this this region of New York was known for being a music production center starting in the vaudeville era. So we're talking late 1800s up until the 1960s is when it began to decline. And it really, truly did decline with Bob Dylan's push to democratize recorded music. And he actually had a stated mission to kill Tin Pan Alley and later in his career said he had succeeded. And then even later in his career said he actually loved a lot of those songs. Complicated history. Absolutely. Well, Jacob, what song would you like to feature next from this album? You know, I think the next one we're going to look at on this one is Jungle Time. Nice. And that's going to be side two, track three.
What's becoming increasingly interesting to me the more I think about this as I listen to this album, I'm a big fan of Crooked Fingers, which is Eric Bachman, formerly of, he was in the band Archers of Loaf, yeah. which, you know, was more raucous indie rock band, but then he had the folkier Crooked Fingers that were around in the 2000s, and his voice has a similarity to Neil Diamond's, and uh, he actually covered Solitary Man on an EP of Crooked Fingers, and that that was actually the first way that I really became familiar with the song Solitary Man, which I really like. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing now more and more that sounded like one of the more rockin' <laughs> Crooked Fingers tracks to me, almost. <laughs> so it's it's funny with that with that in mind. Neil Diamond was a rock musician right early on in his career, and he was trying to be part of the rock and roll movement until he decided not to. And he actually said in an interesting interview with Ben Fong Torres of Rolling Stone magazine uh, in the September 23rd issue, 1976, and I quote, hip was something frivolous people had time to be. I didn't have time to be hip and with it and groovy. I was dealing with something that was much more important with my life and trying to write songs that had substance. And hip is bullshit. It doesn't cut deep. It cuts for today and tomorrow. Sean, what's your instant reaction to that quote? I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) He can't argue with it. I'm not against Neil as a person. I just, the music he makes is not for me. I mean, I think it's all respectable, and I admire his approach and dedication and all that. You heard it here first. Sean hates Neil Diamond. Everyone, everything about him. him. Everything about him. I'm gonna say this: this tune, Jungle Time. Firstly, I absolutely love the synthesizer sounds on that track and the driving bass. It's a rocker, and most of this album, even the slow songs, you put them on and you can't help but move. And part of that is that there were 27 something killer musicians that recorded on this session, which was produced by none other than the band's Robbie Robertson. So this album was kind of set up to be pretty damn groovy, despite despite Neil Diamond's stated claim that he didn't care about being hip. Well, in the end, he puts uh, produced by Robbie Robertson right on the cover. Right on the cover, <laughs> almost like he's trying to get street cred. And the, the guys were friends. They they ended up being neighbors. They had summer homes next to each other in Miami, and they would sit around by the fire and have drinks and talk about life. And they decided to to do an album together. And then Robertson also invited Neil Diamond to perform on The Last Waltz. Yeah, I mean, 1976. <laughs> it was was the, the year. Yeah. Right? And there's apparently a famous tiff backstage that's detailed in the Ben Fong Tours article I mentioned earlier. And if you have access to like an archive edition of Rolling Stone magazine, or I think you get a couple free views on their site, I would highly recommend checking out that article. It's a pretty fascinating one. And I got, I got some serious laughs out of it. But apparently backstage at The Last Waltz, Bob Dylan came up to Neil Diamond and, and Dylan purportedly saw Neil Diamond as being a part of the music establishment. And he very much was in a way. He introduced himself as Neil Sedeka, who was one of the big Tin Pan Alley Brill building songwriters of the day and also largely responsible for throwing in totally phatic words like doobie doobie doos and babies and hip hop songs, which is something this tune Jungle Time does. There's a lot of a lot of meaningless words. Are you saying Dylan introduced himself as Neil Sedaka? Yeah, Dylan introduced himself as Neil Sedaka as like a tongue in cheek, you know, hey, I'm part of the problem too, man. So right before Bob Dylan goes on stage, Neil Diamond, both trying to get him back and cut the tension, goes up to Bob Dylan, puts his arm around him and says, you know, Bob, I think these are really my people out here. 
indicating the audience. <laughs> and uh, Neil Diamond also says in this interview that he thinks he really pissed off Bob Dylan and that Dylan gave a great performance that night. And he says, I'd like to take a little bit of credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Neil Diamond did a song in that performance that's on this album. Dry your eyes. Yeah, which is one of the ones we're going to listen to, definitely. Oh, okay. I was we'll going to say yep. that's probably my favorite one from the album. Then we'll listen to it. And we know we picked Sean's favorite one, too. It's, it's, that's often the only song that I will skip over when I watch The Last Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't even get a last waltz out of Neil Diamond. No waltzing at all for this man. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, this tune Jungle Time, later on, it kind of devolves into him saying words that are associated with violence uh, that that don't really mean much. And I think that that kind of folds nicely into this American modernist poetry tradition that was started by Gertrude Stein sometime in the 1920s of using words that are loosely related to the theme of a piece of poetry to carry rhythm and choosing words for their phonetic merit and the sounds they make rather than the meaning they have. And it's something that Neil Diamond does a lot in his songwriting, but I think it's because he saw himself as a poet more than because he didn't know what to say. Uh, he's also someone who said in a New York Times interview that he didn't care if people understood the meanings of his songs. Interesting. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what you think. And he also kind of hated being in the public eye, too. So he was, he was pretty notorious for taking long breaks from performing and recording and also pretty well known for not being well known. Known for not... For- <laughs> Wait, known for not being well known. Yeah, he liked to keep his private life to himself, and he was very much a family man behind closed doors uh, from everything uh, that I've I read on the guy. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, I was just being playful with my wordplay because I'm talking about the modernists, man. Uh, Makes me all like, Ooh, let's I get see. poetic on this podcast. Here, yeah, I can, uh, I can uh, attest that Jacob had me uh, hand him a postmodern book right before we <laughs> <laughs> it was sitting on the stand here in front of me. Yeah, the Magus by John Fowles, great read. Highly recommend it. I <laughs> see so you were preparing in multiple ways for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really getting into the, the zeitgeist, you know. Well, where do we want to go from here? So I had another interesting point about The Last Waltz, because I wanted to talk about this Bob Dylan's mission to murder Tin Pan Alley, and then we get Neil Diamond reminiscing about it and this, this tiff at The Last Waltz. There was a pretty cool criticism that was written in a Canadian publication called Guilt and Pleasure Quarterly. It was a, a criticism piece talking about Bob Dylan and his, his identity. And this person was essentially saying that because Bob Dylan was removed from Jewish cultural centers on the coast, you know, grew up in the Midwest, um, he he was able to kind of affect this this fake Oki character and get into the more folk rock and progressive movements in music of the day because he wasn't he wasn't mired in the traditions of of Jewish families and cities. And I, I have to wonder sometimes if a talent like Bob Dylan's had not been isolated from people making maybe more traditional types of music and taking more traditional routes, if, if he would have been the gem uh, and, and creative force in music that he was, or would he have been someone that, that kind of decided to try to go to Tin Pan Alley and make it as a songwriter? And we can't know that, but it is an interesting comparison. And, and maybe if an artistic talent like Neil Diamond hadn't had the ability and access to go to one of these songwriting mills, would he have done something a little more aggressive uh, and, and edgy? I don't know. Different paths. Different paths. Uh, and incidentally, those guys were, as I said earlier, born on the same day, and both of their fathers were dry goods merchants. So I kind of love this this collision because of the Tin Pan Alley connection and and because of the supposition that, that a big part of uh, Bob Dylan's growth into who he was was his isolation, and Neil Diamond was very much connected to 
uh, to the city life and the ability to, to go places and meet people and work in giant buildings. So, yeah, it's wild that they they were born four months apart, same year. Yeah, it's, I saw it was uh, yeah Diamond was January twenty fourth, nineteen forty one. Bob Dylan, I know, is May twenty fourth, nineteen forty one. So, very close. Yeah, yeah. In their, I suspect there's more parallels between them as well. There's something about there's a song on this album called "Don't Think Feel." where he's talking about, you know, just feel things, don't think about it. And he expresses kind of that feeling multiple times through this album to the point where I'm thinking, like, this dude's definitely an overthinker. <laughs> and, like he's, like, he's kind of trying to convince himself, I start to wonder. And I kind of get those vibes that's similar to Bob Dylan where he'll, like, he'll present himself as a certain thing, but then be like a very different thing. Actually, that feels like a, another kind of parallel in my mind, even though they ended up being <laughs> sort of opposites in other ways. They also both definitely left an indelible mark on American music. True. If, if for no other reason than Neil Diamond's appearance in the movie saving, was it saving Silverman he was in? I've never seen that movie. <laughs> okay. Wow, we found a movie Peter hasn't seen. That's a pretty dumb. A pretty, I know. You know, the, a, the thing is, I wrote a book about bro culture. Shouldn't I have seen that movie? I mean, it's, it's, it's the Jack Black film, right? Neil Diamond saves the day with with love songs, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, and the, you know, they can both be found in the D section at your local record store too. There you go. True. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time to feature another song. What are we going to hear next? I believe the next tune is going to be Dry Your Eyes, side two, track five. Side B, track five. <laughs> and this, if you're Sean, you can also skip this song on the last Waltz DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Dry your eyes. Your song out It's a newborn afternoon And if you can't recall the singer You can still recall the tune Dry your eyes and play it slowly Like you're marching off to war Sing it like you know he'd want it Like we sang it once before And from the center of the circle To the midst of the waiting crowd If it ever be forgotten Sing it long
That song is Neil Diamond in the mode that I like him best. I don't really like when he's trying to rock or like get people moving. I like when they put that like heavy plate reverb and make his voice sound kind of ghostly. And he's like, he sounds like he's struggling through something. That's, uh, and that's that song. Dare I say, that reminded me a little bit of The Boss. Oh, Sean, immediate reaction. No, I honestly had the same thought while I was like just struggling through this record earlier. <laughs> I was like, is Neil Diamond just like the boss for squares? I'm trying to figure this out. Why do you think he sells so many records? <laughs> exactly. The boss is the boss for squares. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I it was yeah. I'm trying to trying to figure it out. The boss is Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> For those who didn't know, I thought it was Tony Danza. <laughs> I thought he was the lead singer of the E Street Band. <laughs> oh, my he, Lord. He is. One of the same. Well, while we're dropping names, should I drop this incredibly obnoxious list of famous musicians that are on this record? Yeah, you should. Yes, please do. And it's pronounced Page. Well, I was wondering if we'd finally figured out the correct pronunciation. Leora did. Yeah, thank you, Leora. <laughs> well, let's start there. David Page plays piano and Rhodes on this. You may remember he was in Toto mm-hmm. and on a bunch of records we've talked about at this point. Yeah, Cheryl Lynn and his father's Marty Page, another big name in music and arrangement. We got Larry Nectil also on Piano and Rhodes, a Wrecking Crew guy that we've had also on a bunch of different records. Mm-hmm. As previously mentioned, Robbie Robertson of the band fame. You also have Garth Hudson from the band playing some Hammond and Lowry organs. The the true secret weapon of the band. True. He was he's a madman. He did that. The like crazy organ thing in the last waltz. He probably did it through all the band's career, but I don't think I've ever seen a band show other than the last waltz. <laughs> That's probably the case for most people. <laughs> oh, also on guitars, you got Richard Bennett, who played with Billy Joel, Barbara Streisand, Mark Knopfler. You got Jesse Ed Davis on guitars, who played with both John Lennon and George Harrison. And also with Taj Mahal, you got a bunch of different drummers going on here. Jim Keltner, who played with George and John of the Beatles. Harry Nilsson, Carly Simon. You got Russ Kunkel, who played with Stevie Nicks, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, a bunch of the Folkies. You got Jim Gordon on drums. Played with George Harrison, Alice Cooper, Derek and the Dominoes. He's a tragic figure. And also killed his mom. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he uh, had a psychotic episode, and they believe he had undiagnosed schizophrenia. I thought killed his mom was a crust punk band for a second. No, he literally killed his mother and is still in prison for it presently. He most famously contributed the outro the piano outro to Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. And I say contributed because there's a debate 
as to whether he wrote that or his girlfriend at the time, Rita Coolidge, wrote that. But yeah, tragic figure, Jim yeah. Gordon. Got who else we got? We got James Newton Howard on the ARP and the synth. He did a bunch of soundtrack work through all of time almost. He <laughs> just did one in like 26. He did The Dark Knight, he did The Sixth Sense. You got Dr. John yeah. on Hammond. And on the album liner notes, he's actually listed as Mac Rebenack because his, his name is Malcolm John Rebenack, and they spelled the last name wrong, probably on purpose. Yeah, I'm guessing it's one of those situations where he's not allowed to have his name on the album for contract reasons or something. That'd be my guess, but I don't know. But it's it Dr. Be. John. Mm-hmm. He he did a lot of session work, and I I think more often see him build as Rack, Mac Rebenack on other people's records than as Dr. John. Okay. You got Bob James, <laughs> who we've talked about a bunch. Yeah, we've mentioned Bob James a couple times, or maybe like 8 or 12. 20, 30, <laughs> I don't know at this point. He did Piano and Rhodes as well. He also did some arranging on the album for these arrangements, which... That was the part maybe the most impressed me because in my mind, Neil Diamond songs were not like sophisticated, well put together songs, but a bunch of the songs on this album are just that. So that was a, an interesting turn for me. I know Robbie Robertson said that he wanted to maintain as much of the Neil Diamond feel as possible and not make the album too rock and roll or too much like a band album. So, and I, I wonder how much of this, this, complex musicality as a result of, of Diamond's hiatus and his his journey to become a more skilled musician and producer of music. Yeah, because this feels different than the Neil Diamond I'm familiar with in that front. So uh, we'll throw a few more names out here. Tommy Morgan, also of the Wrecking Crew on the harmonica. You got Jerome Richardson on flute and clarinet. He played with uh, Charles Mingus, Lionel Hampton, and Linda Press. She does the backing vocals on this record. And there's like five or six other names, I think, too, that I didn't write down. It's a lot of the, a lot of names. A lot of names. So I did read a pretty interesting account of a law enforcement raid on Neil Diamond's Los Angeles home that happened in 1976. This was a time when he was re-entering the public eye after his hiatus. He had a, a show booked to play at a place called the Aladdin Hotel Theater uh, for the performing arts. And this theater was one of the first, or pardon, the first dedicated art space in Las Vegas. Prior to this, it was all lounge shows that held maybe 100 or so people. And singers weren't necessarily there to showcase as much as they were there to bring clientele into the casinos. So this Aladdin Hotel was built to be a a purpose-built art space that held, I believe, a few thousand people. Neil Diamond was scheduled to play a few nights there. And a couple days before he went down to Las Vegas to kind of take up residence and begin preparations for the show, uh, his house was surrounded by police. They sent a man in plain clothes to snoop around his yard, and the L.A. County Sheriff called Neil Diamond on the phone 
to tell him that there was a prowler on the premises and that they needed to be let in. So Neil Diamond opens his gate and police officers promptly enter the property, serve him a warrant, and they spent the next three to four hours searching his house uh, under the auspices of looking for several pounds of cocaine. They'd gotten an anonymous tip that Neil Diamond was taking pounds and pounds of cocaine with him down to Vegas. And they found just a couple grams of pot. Now, so did Neil, they? Yeah, I was going to say. Neil Diamond believes that it was either a, a Las Vegas hotel boss or maybe an angry booking agent because he had refused several times to play shows in these tiny Las Vegas lounges. He didn't think they were good art places. He believes someone in Las Vegas was trying to prevent him from having his concert and that they were hoping there would be enough drugs on his premises for him to be jailed. Yeah, like just taking a chance and hoping he hoping, would have yeah. something. Yeah. Fortunately, the show went on and Diamond was able to perform and uh, apparently he spent most of the night telling people, yeah, this is the first show here. Uh, if you stick your chewing gum under the seat, it'll be the first chewing gum there. So hopefully there was a lot of chewing gum stuck to the seats that night. <laughs> <laughs> Audience participation. Absolutely, at its finest. <laughs> at its finest. Well, Sean... I hear you're protesting your standard recommended albums list. Is that correct? I mean, I have like a couple of recommendations, but I mean, it's, my heart's not in it. You know, one, one of the things I thought of for a previous episode, one that we did just a few weeks after Jacob came in and did the war record with us is John Hambrick's Windmill in a Jet-Filled Sky. It's got more of a country influence to it, but I, I thought there was some similarities between the two records, and I like that one a lot. Also, we've mentioned the band a bunch, you know, with uh, Garth and Robbie all over this record, and I'm just going to say, listen to every record by the band, or at least their whole original <laughs> run, because all that stuff is amazing. <laughs> and then my last thought was for a different interpretation of Tin Pan Alley material that is more up my alley i highly recommend leon redbone who i want to feature on the show soon i'm sure i've said that before as well sean i just made the connection that the band was was bob dylan's backing band for a while yeah the, the ties between oh, wow. <laughs> neil and bob yeah, there's there's a lot that. of them <laughs> yeah. yeah wow also like you know neil may have inspired <laughs> bob dylan to be a little bit more passionate at the last waltz but it wasn't a neil diamond song that everybody came back to sing at the end it was a bob dylan song so <laughs> you know what i think i think i think neil diamond liked bob dylan i think the beef was very one-sided kind of like uh, kanye and taylor swift and with similar implications right taylor swift took a uh, hiatus from performing for a while too true <laughs> That actually, I have to say, the fact that we only now connected in our minds the band and Bob Dylan connection, that's a real testament to the quality of work the band put out that they could escape the Dylan connection that much in our minds. Yeah, absolutely. We put, And I can tell you put a lot of thought into this, and that still just clicked. So. It just clicked. Yeah. I mean, I would say also just, you know, we've, we featured her before and talked about her a lot, but, you know, Carol King records, I'm finding, are always worth digging into especially you know that late 60s early 70s era i just listened to one from the mid 70s before you came over today yeah. it was amazing yeah yeah i guess i mean the more early to, to mid 70s yeah yeah jacob and i sat down to come up with a recommended albums list because sean said he was protesting it but apparently he put in some work but we got three albums all from 1976 as well up this alley one of which was carol king Thoroughbred. Nice. Uh, do you want to tell them the other ones, Jacob? Uh, so we had 
Boz Skaggs' album, Silk Degrees, and I don't know, maybe Sean's shaking his head, but the production quality to me is pretty similar. There's an over-the-topness to it with a, with an underlying groove, and obviously Boz Skaggs is funkier and a lot less loungy than, than Neil Diamond, but I feel like in terms of production value and musical quality and the arrangements, they're pretty similar. And yeah. Pretty similarly polarizing voice, I would say. Yeah, yeah, he's got an odd voice, too. And, and both Neil Diamond and Boz Skaggs were in the Steve Miller band. Wait, Whoa. no, just Boz Skaggs. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's always ready to believe Peter, no matter how wild a shit he says. We're all just like, wait a yeah. minute. It has that's, to be true, right? <laughs> that's how he gets away with it, man. Also, I just want to say, I ride hard for Boz Skaggs. I got no problems with that guy. No, no, that's why I said what I said, because I know you like Boz Skaggs. Oh, the fact so, that you would compare the fact that I would compare I that I would speak his oh, name and no, Neil Diamond's no. in the same breath and say this album's similar to a Boz Skaggs album because I love, I love Silk Degrees that that like iconic that iconic drum intro on the first track it's like oh it gets you every time. Do you know that originally "Nothing But a G Thing" by Dr. Dre and Snoop was a Boz Skaggs sample? I did before they they ended up going a different route, but mm-hmm. yeah, interesting fact. Our and our third recommendation uh, that is similar to. This Neil Diamond track is Jackson Brown's deeply introspective The Pretender. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jackson Brown. That's a good comparison. Fantastic. Well, Jacob, do you have anything you want to plug while you're here? And I'll say this. Uh, I got to work on the studio album I'm pretty fond of called Radical is My Brand. It's uh, our, I'd buy that for Dollar's very own Jeremy Ruggles, and that will be coming out on April 1st on vinyl. And on digital download, it will be available for streaming. And he and I will be playing a show at the Dormouse Theater in Kalamazoo in support of that album. So if you want to come out and uh, see Jeremy finally and shake our hands and, you know, kiss our pretty faces, come on down to the Dormouse Theater in Kalamazoo on April 1st. I'm blushing. I didn't even, I wasn't trying to fish for you to plug me. <laughs> I and, did anyway. And we promise this is not an April Fool's joke. It truly is oh, not. True. It truly is not. <laughs> it's, it's really happening. The only foolish thing is that I had vinyl made for the first time in my life, so I'm going to be the fool with just boxes of my own vinyl in my house for the next 10 years. Maybe that's why I plugged it on your podcast about vinyl records so we can get all these damn records out of my living room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're taking up a lot of space. (laughs) I can't tell them apart from my Neil Diamond collection. I keep pulling out, you know, trying to find Hot August Night, and it's, it's Jeremy Ruggles instead, man. It's infuriating. I just need to hear that that deep baritone slide into every single note it sings. Ah, <laughs> uh, Sean, are you convinced yet? Neil Diamond? I I'm not convinced. I maybe I'll try again, but at this point, I think I think I just need to accept that I'm not a Neil Diamond fan. It's funny. I I think Sean would have been fine with just laying back in the cut. And not saying a whole lot. And we've just been prodding him about this the whole episode. <laughs> I mean, I kind of started out calling him out into the street about this. So, you know, I was I was honestly hoping for a little more pushback and derision today. So, you know, that's kind of a bummer. I didn't get insulted once, but yeah, whatever. fishing for it. But Sean's too mature for all that. I'm out here cruising for a bruising, <laughs> yeah. as they say. I think Jeremy is just trying to play the long con and have me replace him as the grumpy hater on the show. <laughs> Slowly but surely. That's the reverse call out. <laughs> Is that a call in? That's a call in. Well, I was I was hoping to find the connection between Neil Diamond and Lou Diamond Phillips on this episode, but 
I'm guessing that there is none. None that I'm aware of. My research didn't go that deep, although one of the neat things about artists that are this ubiquitous, there's a lot of cool primary articles about him. So I was able to find tons of stuff uh, in, in venerable publications about Neil Diamond in this era. It was a pretty neat experience getting to a little bit of a deep dive. I even actually went and read some New York Times articles on microfiche at the university library here in town because wow. I work days and I had nothing better to or I work nights and I had nothing better to do that day. So this is some hardcore research you did. And I couldn't find my copy of the album. This is kind of a bummer. I thought it was at my parents' house because I'd loaned a bunch of my Neil Diamond records to mom. Uh, my mom, I should say, and I I went over there to try to find them, and and she didn't know where they were. So their house is kind of kind of cluttered, so I was like, you know, I'll go buy one. I sauntered down to my local record store and I was able to procure a copy for three dollars and seventeen cents. Well, that's proof that you can just if you want the album, go out and you'll find it cheap. Yeah, walk to the nearest place that has records, and you will find it for less than five dollars. Yeah, and if you if you can't find it at that record store, it's because it's in the free bin by the front door. <laughs> <laughs> I have had the experience many times in my life of uh, someone coming up to me and going, "Hey, hey, Jacob, you like records? My aunt just passed away, and she had all these records." And you go through, and it's like you know, whipped cream and other delights, and a bunch of Lawrence Welk, and then every Neil Diamond hit record, maybe two of some of them. So there was a period in time where I was collecting copies, like individual copies of Hot August Night, just for fun, and I think I had twelve at my peak, and then I, I took them all to Goodwill. Uh, who knows what became of them? Maybe someone pressed them into bowls for keys or something. But <laughs> yeah, I just assumed someone else that was collecting as many copies as they could snatched all of them up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they went into the collection of 400 hot Jack August high. nights. <laughs> <laughs> that was the impetus for my joke about, you know, the number of copies this album Sean's thrown away because I'm sure he's had the same experience with, with boxes from estate sales or someone whose who's auntie passed away and had had records. Well, fantastic. Thanks for joining us again, Jacob. Thanks. You know, my only regret about all this is that it's a podcast and not a TV show, so your listeners can't see my sparkly uh, gemstone shirt that I wore in honor of Neil Diamond tonight. <laughs> yeah. I'm just picture it, listeners. He's doing that while wearing a baseball, a Thrasher magazine baseball cap over the top. Of his big old like studio headphones, so and I, I mistook he killed his mother for a crust punk band, so that tells you how cool I am. Yeah, he's <laughs> got well. a look today. <laughs> Incidentally, Neil Diamond, whose actual last name is Diamond, started wearing those gem studded shirts so that people in the cheap seats could still see him move around on stage. So I don't know if that's hubris or kindness. I'll let the listeners decide. Well, that's a good note to leave on for this episode. Thank you so much. What are we going to be uh, going out on? What did we decide? Yeah, Lady O, I think. And that was one of the big hits off this record. Lady O. Not to be confused with the Judy Sill song, Lady O. Different song by Neil Diamond. This is a good one, too. This is uh, I, this is probably one of my favorites on here. Yeah, this is my second favorite after Dry Your Eyes. This one also features some tenor saxophone by the great Tom Scott, who's been mentioned many times on the show. Ah, Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. My name is Jacob Selner.